being replaced right now. Um, I'm told they're going to have them on Tuesday, so I'm very excited about that. So uh, last night, I really struggled with this because if I keep them on and I look at you guys, you're all just one big blur, and I like to kind of make contact with people. And then if I, and I put them down uh, at the bottom of my nose, I feel like I'm like, you know, a wannabe librarian or something like that. Uh, so I'm not sure how, uh, how this is going to work today. I'm going to just kind of go with them on my face, and I'll probably like look out over you a little bit like that, and they may be coming on and off. So if that's a distraction to you, I, uh, I apologize. Uh, if I've offended any librarians, I apologize. That was not my intent at all. And uh, so it's, it's good to have you this, here this morning. Uh, I want to take you back to June 14th, 1961. On that day, uh, a skinny 17-year-old young man from uh, Harrisburg boarded a, an airplane uh, bound for South Carolina uh, with a one-way ticket and uh, virtually nothing else. And upon his arrival in uh, Palmetto State, uh, he and several other young men were uh, from across the country, they were unceremoniously uh, ushered into the back of an unmarked delivery truck. And over the course of the next hour, hour and a half or so, the, the truck and its human cargo uh, made its way to a, a small coastal South Carolina island, uh, an island that's uh, towering oaks are cloaked in Spanish moss, uh, that have these amazing azalea bushes that are overflowing with fragrant flowers. Uh, there's acres of, of, of beautiful white sand, unfortunately, teeming with fleas. And then on this island, there are terrifying human beings uh, that are clad in crisp olive green pants, tan shirts starched so heavy that they could stand by themselves in the closet. And on their head, they sport a Smokey the Bear hat. Uh, the place many of you will know because many of you have been to, or some of you have been to that place. It's called uh, Paris Island, the Marine Corps recruiting station there. And the young man of 17 back in 1961 is now my 75-year-old father. Uh, it would be there on that island that my dad would be transformed from a John Harris High School pioneer into a United States Marine, or as he drilled into my... Yeah. <laughs> You get a round of applause, Dad. That means you're buying the movie tickets this afternoon, man. So, uh, yeah, he was transformed into a U.S. Marine, or as he drilled into my head as a little kid, along with the Marine Corps him, he drilled in the idea that he was a lean, mean fighting machine. Uh, he is no longer lean. He's not really mean anymore. I don't know what kind of fighting machine he is other than with my mom. Uh, but it would be also there that he would have the motto of the United States Marine Corps, Semper Fidelis, always faithful, uh, burned into his psyche. And it's an, an unwavering commitment to that motto of always being faithful, uh, abbreviated Semper Fi, that is the distinguishing trademark of every Marine, both in triumph and in adversity. And I want to give you an example of that. In the early morning hours of Sunday, October 23rd, 1983, at the Beirut Lebanon Airport, a terrorist driving a Mercedes-Benz box truck laden with explosives leveled the four-story U.S. Marine barracks building, killing 220 Marines, 18 sailors, three soldiers, and injuring more than 100 others. And a few days after that attack, 
Uh, the Marine Corps Commandant Paul Kelly visited some of those Marines who had been evacuated to uh, the hospital in Frankfurt, Germany. And among those uh, injured was a young man by the name of Corporal Jeffrey Nashton. Nashton was so uh, severely injured that he had so many tubes coming in and out of his body, so many wires all over his body, he looked more like a machine than he did a man. This Kelly, the, the highest-ranking Marine in the Corps, neared him. Nashton, who, who struggled to move, who was in incredible pain, motioned uh, to the nurse for a pen and a piece of paper, upon which he wrote a, a brief note that he pressed into General Kelly's hand. And as the general uh, looked upon the note, uh, tears began to well up in his eyes, and he read those two lone words, Semper Fi, always faithful. And facing the greatest challenge of his young life, Corporal Jeffrey Nashton, he chose faithfulness. And as much as those words describe those who wear the eagle globe and anchor of the United States Marine Corps, they too should describe those who profess the name of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. You see, as fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ, we're called to be faithful in, in all things, faithful in both adversity, which we've learned about over the last several weeks as we've examined Joseph's life, but also faithful in prosperity, as we're going to learn today. So uh, let's get started. If you have a Bible with you or a Bible app uh, with you, find your way to uh, Genesis chapter 41. We're going to look at verses 46 to 57. If you don't have a uh, a Bible or a smartphone. Uh, there are uh, Bibles on the tables. There are not smartphones on the tables, but there are Bibles on the tables that you can uh, please take one of those and, and keep that. Uh, Genesis chapter 41, verses 46 to 57. If you are able, if you would please stand in honor of God's word. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. During the seven plentiful years, the earth produced abundantly. And he gathered up all the food of these seven years which occurred in the land of Egypt and put the food in the cities. He put in every city the food from the fields around it. And Joseph stored up grain in great abundance like the sand of the sea until he ceased to measure it, for it could not be measured. And before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Asnath, the daughter of Potiphar, a priest of On, bore to them to him. Joseph, named, uh, Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. In the name of the second son he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. The seven years of plenty had occurred in the land of Egypt. The seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began to come, as Joseph had said. There the famine was in all the lands, but all the land of Egypt there was bread. When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. And Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, Go to Joseph, what he says to you, do. So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. 
Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain because the famine was so severe over all the earth. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Over the the course of the last month or so, we have all learned what it looks like to be faithful in the midst of adversity, while at the same time learning that in the midst of adversity, God is also faithful to us. But what we're going to uh, learn this morning is that God doesn't just cause us to be faithful in the midst of adversity, he also calls us to be faithful in the midst of prosperity, which I believe in many ways is exponentially more difficult. It's one thing to be faithful in adversity. It is another thing to be faithful when you're actually prospering. Listen to the words of Proverbs 30. Two things I ask of you, deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my, the Lord my God. You see, when we are poor, uh, when we are hungry, when we're facing adversity, our natural tendency is to try to figure these things out on our own. And many of the ways that we do that are sinful. We steal, we lie, we cheat. Uh, We take advantage of others. Uh, We manipulate people in situations all in an effort to to meet our our needs and to somehow kind of comfort our pain. In the midst of all of it, we think to ourselves, you know, if I only had more stuff, or perhaps if I had less pain in my life, if I wasn't suffering in this way, if only things were easier, then my life would be much better. But then the writer of Proverbs comes along and says, you know, when I have stuff, when my life is easy, when I'm not struggling, uh, then my natural tendency is actually to to abandon God because I've got this. And we we say to to God, you know what, God, I I don't think that I really need you right now. It's, It's great that you pulled me out of the slimy pit. It's great that you took me out of the muck and the mire. It's great that you set my feet upon a rock and put a new song in my heart, a hymn of praise to to others. It's wonderful that you did all of that. Thank you so much, God, for doing the heavy lifting. And now, I'll take it from here. You see how it works? You see, prosperity is as spiritually dangerous as adversity. But Joseph, he shows us how we're to live in the midst of prosperity. Let me explain. Joseph, at this point now, he is 30 years old. He has literally gone from the prison to the palace. In less time than it took for Penn State to to blow a potential undefeated season. Heartbreaking last night. I could barely preach. It was terrible. Fortunately, John's girls team at Cedarville University won last night, so that was the upside to it. So... But in less time than it takes Penn State to blow it, Joseph goes from being a trustee in a prison to being a man who is over all of Pharaoh's kingdom. And so with Pharaoh's signet ring on his finger, with clothes of fine linen on his back, a gold chain around his neck, you know, Joseph, at least in appearance, 
It's like an ancient uh, Middle Eastern version of Mr. T for all of us old people or Kanye for the younger crowd. I mean, that's kind of what he's looking like. And now rather than being in charge of just this minor group of prisons, he's running the entire show. But with all that power becomes the question, what in the world is he actually going to do? How will he live? Will he glorify God in prosperity the same way that he glorified God in the midst of adversity? And sadly, many times, godly people put their faith to the side when they come about newfound prosperity. We get a promotion and a work replaces worship. Uh, we receive a, a, a financial windfall, and, and trading stocks takes the place of, of sharing our faith with others. We, we earn a degree, and stoking our ego replaces serving God's people. We finally get that, that long-awaited beach house or, the, or that long-awaited cabin in the woods or, or that camper or that motorcycle or, or whatever toy that you've been waiting for. And, 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 and we spend all of our time with that rather than connecting with God's people. Instead, we decide, let's just connect with nature. Or one of a million other things that, that comes our way in the midst of prosperity that ultimately crowds God out. But it doesn't have to be that way. And as we examine this, this text this morning, we're going to discover a couple principles of, of how Christ followers, fully devoted followers of Jesus, can, can actually uh, glorify God in the midst of their prosperity. And the first is this. That, that people in the midst of their prosperity who love Jesus, they ultimately obey God. Last week, Pastor Ben took us through uh, the interpretation that God gave to Joseph as it would related to Pharaoh's dream. And in verse 34, God speaking through Joseph is very explicit about what is to be done. Listen to the instructions here. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the pro produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years. And let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities and let them keep it. That food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt so that the land may not perish through the famine. You see, for seven years, God declares that agricultural productivity in Egypt is going to be off the hook. It's going to be over the top. They are going to have so much grain, so much produce, they are not going to know what to do with it. But rather than consume it, they're supposed to take one-fifth of it, 20%, and, and, and give that all to Pharaoh, actually give it through Joseph to Pharaoh, for the eventual use when these seven years of famine come. Now, now give is kind of a kind word here, okay? Because the reality is it's not really wasn't giving. It was a 20% a tax that all of these people had to pay of their grain. And Joseph does exactly what God commands him to do. Listen to how for verse 49 describes that. And Joseph stored up grain in great abundance like the sand of the sea until he ceased to measure it for it could not be measured. I want you to think about that for a moment. There is so much stuff coming in. They give up measuring it. 
They give up counting it. They don't have abacuses big enough to keep track of everything, you know? And so, now what is the natural tendency for us when we are in that condition, when there is so much stuff coming in that we don't know what to do with it? At some point, if you or I were Joseph, we would perhaps be tempted to say, you know what? This is too much work. We got plenty of stuff. We can't even count it. God must not actually know what he's talking about here. Let's just stop here. Let, let's shut down the tax. Let's let the people keep their stuff. Let them do whatever they want with it and enjoy the fruits of their labor. After all, it's too much work to be managing all of this stuff. We simply got too much stuff. Or the other thing that could happen would be this. The people could rise up. They could say, yo, Pharaoh, this 20% tax, it's got to stop. I mean, look at all the stuff you got. You, you can't even count it. You can't figure out where to keep it. Why, why should we keep giving this to you? It's time for a tax break, basically, is what they're asking for. And either way, after a year or two or three, I would imagine there would have been great internal and external pressure on Joseph to shut all of this down. But that's not what Joseph does. He listens to God. He doesn't deviate. He remains faithful. And brothers and sisters, like Joseph, you and I are living in the midst of unbelievable prosperity. A few weeks ago, I showed you that even the poorest among us at Living Water is wealthier than like 82% of the balance of the world. And everything is going great. And what happens is people decide, you know what? I don't need God. That's where we're at. We have the most prosperous nation in all of history, the most prosperous nation on the face of the earth. And we have turned our back on God. And, as we've, uh, and God is an afterthought to much of our nation. We no longer have room for him in our government, in our schools, in our workplaces. Sadly, even many of our churches have abandoned God's word because they simply don't like what it has to say. But what's even more tragic than that is that some of us sitting in this room, if we're honest, we really don't have room for him in our lives. We have more leisure time than ever. More time-saving conveniences than any time in history. We don't have to spend our time growing food to eat or going out hunting. Those things are both hobbies anymore. What's your hobby? I'm a gardener. What's your hobby? I'm a hunter. Ask people that 200 years ago. That was not a hobby. That is what I did to survive. We don't have to haul fresh water from a, a distant stream to drink. We don't have to go out and, and dig a, a, a latrine and go in the middle of the night out in the cold to the bathroom. We can get from point to point in almost no time at all. We can pretty much have anything that we want delivered to our home in the next two days. Think about it. You go to Amazon, you type in virtually anything in the world, and that puppy is showing up at your place either tomorrow or the next day. Heck, if, if you're hungry this afternoon, you don't even have to drive to Jimmy John's to get a number four with cheese and hots and sprouts. You just put it in the little app. 
and Uber Eats or Grubhub or Mikey Delivers, whatever you want to call it, I mean, it shows up at your house. I mean, that's the way that it works. We have everything in need, but in reality, we're still too busy. We're too busy to pray. We're too busy to study God's word. We're too busy to serve others. We're too busy to share our faith. We're too busy to worship. We're too busy to just simply sit down in the quiet and listen for God's still voice. How many of us, when we got just a couple spare minutes, are whipping out that stupid phone, checking the news, playing, I don't know what the latest game on Facebook is or whatever, but I mean, think about it. You go to a restaurant. Couples are out on a date, a guy and a girl. They're not making googly eyes at each other. They're Googling is what they're doing. It's insane. It's totally insane. And all of this prosperity has brought us brokenness and depression and addiction. I just read that this past couple weeks, the, the opioid overdoses in, in Pennsylvania have been at record levels. Why, why is that? Why is that happening? It brings violence and division. And there's this underlying anger that is snuffing out all of the kindness in the world. Everybody's, I have the glasses got to come off for a minute. Everybody is out of their minds. Yesterday, I, I was wrapping up here. I, I came here in the morning to to put the finishing touches on the message around 1 o'clock in the afternoon, I decided to, to drive home. I just live right out here off of Progress Avenue in Union Deposit. And, and so I, I, Kathy has uh, my car at the, the beach with her, her sisters right now. And, and so I've got the, the sexy hot minivan that makes sure that I'm not cruising for women or something like that, I guess. I don't know. But anyhow, so I hop in, in the minivan and I'm driving uh, down Progress Avenue. I put on my left turn signal to turn on the Larry Drive. Okay, my turn signal's working. I know my brake lights are working because the van would tell me it's not working. The next thing you know, as I'm making the left turn, the guy or gal behind me, I don't know, know who it was, they, they beep on the horn, roll down the window. The only thing I see is they flip me the bird. I'm like, why? What did I do? I mean, people, we, we have everything. Yet for some reason, we are so angry, so mean, so nasty, so unkind to people. You see, Joseph didn't do what many of us do. He didn't abandon faithfulness in the midst of his prosperity. And he didn't let his nation do it either. He obeyed God. He trusted that, that God knew best even when it didn't seem to make sense. He led people well, and most of all, he understood scriptures that weren't even written down yet. Listen to the things that he understood. I mean, Proverbs isn't written for, for centuries after Joseph's here, but listen, trust in the Lord with all of your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. And he'll make your way straight. Do you want to know where, where to go and how to get there? Trust God. Don't trust your own understanding. When I lean on my own understanding, I run myself into brick walls. I do the stupidest things in the world. But when I trust God, even though it doesn't seem to make sense, somehow it manages to turn out okay. 
Another passage in Isaiah says this, For my thoughts are, are not your thoughts, says the Lord, neither are your ways my ways, declares God. God says, the way that I think is not how you think. The things that I do are not what you would do. He says, for as far as the heavens are higher than the earth, and that's a long way, folks, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Our natural default is to, to, to fall back into our common sense or, or what seems right or whatever, and God says, don't do that. Trust me, follow me. That's what he's telling us to do. And like Joseph, we need to obey God in the midst of our prosperity. But there's another thing that we need to do. In the midst of that prosperity, we need to acknowledge that God is actually the one who is causing the prosperity to happen in our lives. Look at verses 50 to 52. Before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Asna, the daughter of Potiphar, priest of On, bore them to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh. And four, he said, God has made me forget all my hardship in my, all my father's house. And the name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. Here's Joseph. He's the number two guy in all of Egypt. He is experiencing now unimaginable prosperity. He's got over-the-top power. He's married to a woman who is no doubt beautiful, highly educated. She's the daughter of one of the most powerful priests in all of Egypt. And now he has two little boys. And it would be so easy for him to sit back and say, look at what I've accomplished. Look at, at what I have done. I, I have been faithful in the midst of this. And, and look at what I'm doing now. I'm saving everybody. Because that's what people do all the time. You don't believe me? Start following a couple of high-profile celebrities or sports figures on Instagram one day. They'll tell you how great they are. You don't even have to do that. Just start following some of your friends. They'll tell you how wonderful they are all the time. It's amazing. These people are incredible. They do everything. They scale the tallest mountains, jump over the highest buildings. They're, they're stronger than a locomotive. You know, they're, they're great. At least that's what they'll tell you. That's not Joseph. He understood that the source of his success, and we see that because of the meaning of the names he gives his son. His first son, it means this, making forget, that God made me forget. Joseph said God has enabled him to forget all of the bad things that have happened in his life, all of the adversity. How many of us can say that? How many of us have, have cling to the adversity? But God in his goodness, he wants to remove that stuff. I can remember years ago, Living Water was, was relatively, evilly, e relatively young, and, and uh, some, some good friends did some really just stupid stuff, and, and I, I had to hold them uh, uh, accountable for it, and they were not happy with me. And, and like two or three years passed by, and and where Kathy brings up this situation and says, you remember how mean they were to you? And I'm like, no, I don't remember that. That's not me doing that. In my own power, man, I'm holding grudges. 
I'm thinking about all the nasty stuff you all done to me, you know? <laughs> but God, man, he wipes all that stuff away. He just wipes it away. He, he enables us to process the pain of a loss, not through our own strength, but through God's strength. And a lot of you guys know this. A lot of you have known great loss. You've suffered much. There have been times in your life when, when God had seemed so incredibly far away, but, but you have remained faithful. And in the process, you have acknowledged that God is at work. And as time passed, and as the tears dry up, and as the crowds of grief lift, and clarity begins to invade our lives, we're able to see the gracious hand of God at work. Through some of the hardest things, God's there. I've watched God carry some of the widows and widowers in our church family in amazing ways. I've seen brutal divorces happen and people be incredibly forgiving to, to ex-spouses who have been so incredibly nasty. That's not their own strength. That's God doing that. You see, in the midst of it all, Joseph realizes that God is at work. His second son, it means God has, has put me in fertile land. He says, God's made my, my life fruitful, that in the midst of all of this affliction, God has still provided for me. He recognizes that, that God is the one who brings the, the fullness of life. The things can be really bad. There could be miscarriage after miscarriage after miscarriage. And one day you're holding the baby. A baby that came either out of your womb or out of the womb of somebody else. Because God is gracious and wonderful and merciful. And because of this, Joseph acknowledged God's hand both in adversity and in the midst of prosperity. But most people, when they experience great prosperity, you know what happens? Rather than recognizing the great hand of God, instead, we get all puffed up because we believe it's the result of, of what we've done. And likewise, when people experience great adversity, you know what happens? We become despondent because we believe that we've done something wrong. That's not the way Joseph was. In the midst of adversity and prosperity, he didn't look to himself, but rather to God. Back in, in, in January, uh, many of you know this because I've alluded to it before, but uh, I, I was in kind of a, a, a bad place uh, towards the end of last year, and the elder board thought, you know, Mike, it'd be really good uh, to get you and Kathy away to like a pastoral counseling place. And uh, so Kathy and I, we went out to uh, a place uh, out in, uh, I guess it was, uh, it's in outside of Denver, Colorado, Parker, Colorado, and uh, I, I tell people it was the place for jacked-up pastors. That's what it's for. And, uh, and, and we were out there, and we were with uh, two other, other pastoral couples, and we all had our own counselor. And uh, God gave us this amazing man by the name of HUD, and uh, he, he spent five days with us. And, and HUD was very, very helpful to me. He, he helped me make a, a lot of changes in my life that, that I didn't realize that I needed to make. And, and we talk with HUD every, every month. Uh, the church is kind enough to, to let Kathy and I Skype with him uh, once a month. And, and HUD, uh, last, last time that we chatted with him, he says, you know, Mike, 
Uh, there's, there's a book I think that would be really helpful for you. And uh, it's called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. And, 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 and you guys should write this term down. It's the, called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. It costs you a whopping $4.95 on Amazon Prime, okay? So trying to help Bezos get richer and catch back up to, to Bill Gates, I guess. But, uh, and here's the idea of, of this tiny little book. You see, self-forgetfulness is this, that you don't spend your time thinking too highly of yourself, nor do you spend your time thinking too little of yourself. Because that's typically what we do. We either spend all of our time thinking that we're really great, or we spend all of our time thinking that we're really horrific. Instead, what uh, the author says is that you need to spend your time thinking about yourself less. That's what you need to do. You need to think of more about God and more about others. And, and this is how it plays out. When, when you're someone who, who spends all of your time thinking about yourself or, and, and you think really highly of yourself or you think really poorly of yourself, this is kind of what goes down. Uh, someone comes along and, and, and says something to us or does something to us that is hurtful. And, and if we think too highly of ourselves, uh, we get angry and like, how dare you possibly do that? You know, do you know who I am? Do you know what I've accomplished? Oh, how could you possibly do that? Or if we think too poorly of ourselves, rather than getting angry, we get depressed because others are simply affirming that which we believe about ourselves. But that's not the way that Joseph lived. In the midst of prosperity, in the midst of adversity, he chose to forget about himself and instead look to God and others. And brothers and sisters, we would do well to do the same. And that brings me to the third and perhaps the most important point. Because whenever you're looking at a passage of Scripture, it's great to try to figure out what the people are doing, but the most important thing is to figure out what God is up to in that passage of Scripture. And this is what God is doing. God is using the faithful to point people to himself. That's what God is up to. God is all about receiving glory because he's the only one who deserves glory. And so he uses faithful people, faithful people like you and me, to point others to him for his glory. Look at the next couple verses, 53 through 55. The seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began to come. And Joseph said, there was a famine in all the lands, but in all the lands of Egypt there was, oh, uh, I'm sorry, there was a famine in all the lands, but in all the lands of Egypt there was bread. And when all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. And Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, go to Joseph, what he says to you, do. You see, eventually all of the prosperity that Joseph and the Egyptians are experiencing ultimately comes to an end, which by the way, is how prosperity works. That's the way that prosperity works. It's here for a while, and, and then it's gone. Uh, basically, uh, the stock market goes up, and the stock market goes down. Economies expand, economies or, or contract. Things come, and then one day, you know, after the good things come, bad things come. And what I find about this is how quickly people forget this reality. Many people think that the good times are going to ultimately last 
forever, and because of that, they don't plan for the future. Now think about this for a second. All of the Egyptians, they are aware that there's going to be seven years of plenty. And, and, and that's obviously how you justify the 20% tax. They're like, folks, you, you don't have to worry about this. There's going to be so much stuff coming in. Don't worry about it. You've got seven years of plenty coming in. The reason we're collecting all this stuff is because there are going to be seven bad years that are coming in the future. And so, Joseph prepares, but from what you read in the text, nobody else does. Everybody's crops are pouring in like crazy, and no one is setting anything aside. Because what does verse 55 say? When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Where in the world is your stuff, folks? What did you do with your extra stuff? You see, Joseph warns everybody the prosperity isn't going to last. No one listens. They're all living for the present and not for the future, consuming all that they have, living paycheck to paycheck. And this is what we hear all of the time. Like X amount of Americans live paycheck to paycheck. We live paycheck to paycheck. It doesn't have to be that way. It does not have to be that way. Any of us, no matter how messed up we've got our finances, we can set aside some cash. It's going gonna, it's gonna to cause a sacrifice. You know what? You may not be able to have the 150 megabit internet. You may have to go to the 50. You know, you may not be able to have the, the, the version 27.3 of the iPhone or whatever's out there now. You know, all of us, Every single one of us, probably there's a couple that can't afford it, but most of us could, could go with eating just a little bit less. Right? We, we don't have to live this way. Well, we end up living this way because well, that's the way that we want to live. And so that's what the people do. They consume all that they have. And when the famine comes, the famine they know that is going to come. They can't save themselves. So what do they do? They go to Pharaoh, and they're begging for bread. And what does he do? He points them to Joseph. He says, you know Joseph, that, that, that Hebrew, that guy who worships the, the one God of the Hebrews, not all of the gods that we worship, but that unique guy? Go to him. He'll take care of you. He'll do the heavy lifting. He will do that which you were not prepared to do and that which you are not able to do. He says, while you were living for yourself, not considering the future, he was thinking of you, providing for you, providing for you to live and not die. And in pointing people to Joseph, Pharaoh unknowingly was pointing people to God. Because it wasn't God who saved them. Or it was God who saved them. Well, big faux pas. Erase that. Take that one off the internet. There'll be phone calls coming in. I'll be on websites. We don't want to be there. Oh, my. And you know what? The same holds true for you and me.
Many of us don't think about this. But all of us, at one point of time, and perhaps even at this present time, are living in the midst of a spiritual famine. We know what God expects. We know what's going to happen. We, we know that, that, that God demands obedience. We understand that God is holy. We, we know, deep down inside, we get this. Romans 1 tells us that. It tells us every one of us knows that there is God, knows that he is holy, knows that we fall very short of God's holiness. But none of us, we want to acknowledge that. And so we go through life in the midst of this spiritual famine. And at some point in our lives, crisis happens. Someone perhaps comes along who loves us enough and actually tells us about Jesus and says, you know what? What you need to do is you need to go to Jesus and do what he tells you to do. If you want to survive the famine, that's what you do. You go to Jesus. Because at the end of the day, folks, without Jesus, we're, we're done. There, there is an accounting coming. There is a day of judgment that is going to come. And, and, and we will either stand before the throne of God with Jesus at our side, interceding upon uh, our ha behalf, looking at his father and saying, this one's mine. He's in here because of what I've done. Or we stand beside him and he says, I don't even know who you are. Be gone. Brothers Many of you have figured this out. Many of you have recognized that, that, that you cannot please God in and of yourself, that you cannot be obedient enough, that I cannot be obedient enough. I am reminded of, of, of the horror of my sin every single day and the desperate need that I have for a Savior, someone who has stored everything up for me, who has provided for me when I was wasting everything. And that's what Jesus has done. And for those of you who have done what Jesus said, which was repent and believe, for those of you who have done that, you and I should live lives of great obedience and lives that acknowledge who he is and what he's doing. And for those of us who have yet to do that, I pray that you look into your heart and ask yourself, am I really... Am I all that good? And folks, we're in the, think about this for a second. Go to Sunday, September 16th, 2001. What happened that day? Churches in America were filled to the brim. Why? because adversity came and knocked on our door that earlier Tuesday. 
And what happened over the course of these last 18 years? We have gotten comfortable and complacent. Prosperity has come in and we have kicked God to the curb. Brothers and sisters, every one of us, we, we got our own 9-11 coming one day. We're going to be standing before the judge of the world. And either we get it right on this side of our lives now, because it will be too late on that day. When those planes fly into our building, it's done. It's all over. You want to go to Jesus and do what he tells you to do. Let me pray for us. Lord God, you are good. Father, I thank you that you are with us in the midst of both adversity and prosperity. And I pray, Heavenly Father, that, Lord, for, for those who have come to faith in you, who have truly repented of their sins and who have received you as Lord and Savior, I pray, Father, that you would empower us through the power of your Spirit to, to live lives of radical obedience to you, not because that's what earns us our salvation. Our salvation can't be earned, Heavenly Father, except through your Son, Jesus. He's the one who's earned it for us. He's the one who, who says that, that we are right in your sight. But, Lord, we obey our out of love for him. And God, would you help us not to just obey, but Lord, might we acknowledge that, that you are our hope and our salvation. Father, may we shout it from, from the rooftops that we be not afraid, Heavenly Father, to, to speak of it in, in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our sports teams, in our workplaces, in our communities. God, let us share the good news of Jesus Christ, who is the way and the truth and the life, who no one comes to the Father except through him. Father, Help us to do that. And Lord, for those who are here today at Living Water who have yet to do that, I pray that, that Lord, your spirit would do that which none of us can do and that you would gently draw them to yourself. Father, helping them to see their sin as I have seen the depth of my sin and knowing that there is forgiveness and hope through the one who lived and died and rose again and who's coming back. Lord God, might you be glorified. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for your goodness. And thank you for the struggles you allow us to have. Because they all point us to you and you alone. And it's through your son's risen name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Would you stand with us as we wrap up?